As we surf the wave of technological revolution in our day, something has been virtually stolen away from us. Powerful communication technologies provided by satellites and provided by the internet have virtually stolen our ability to miss someone. Isn't that a good thing? Well, indeed it is, often. Many of our nation's soldiers who fight for freedom on foreign soil today are able to communicate regularly, audibly, visually with their families. And that's a good thing. It eases the pain of separation. In ancient times, we think of soldiers then, they would leave home and may not hear from them until they returned. Sometimes that was years later. Families would wait and hope and wonder. The pain of separation, the intensity with which loved ones were missed was excruciatingly difficult to endure. Anyone my age or older, some perhaps even slightly younger than me, will remember a war fought by our nation when the communication with soldiers was by letter. And it might take weeks for those letters to reach their destination in either direction. Now to contrast that with something I heard reported here recently, there's a, a young dating couple, this is a real couple, I don't know them, but they recently had to leave one another to go off to different colleges. This couple texted each other. Virtually every move that they made through the day was recorded until classes were over and they could communicate by way of Internet. There was never a moment when they were actually apart. One of the young man's friends noted that the poor chap was more henpecked than if his girlfriend had actually attended the same college. Although he was separated from her, he never missed her. We sacrifice something when we lose the painful experience of missing people that we love. When we cannot see, hear, or touch someone for a painfully extended period of time, the separation often reveals the nature of our relationship. That experience of missing that individual brings out what we really value in one another. Does absence cause the heart to grow fonder? Or does absence cause the heart to wander? The incessantly texting dating couple will absolutely never know. But as we travel back in time to the first century and we consider the separation of the Apostle Paul from the believers at the city of Thessalonica, the true nature of that relationship is displayed by that separation. As we consider Paul's letter to his disciples, it reveals the nature of the relationship then that we should pursue as the body of Christ. Before we consider this correspondence, and I invite you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll be looking at the end of that chapter and on into chapter 3. But before we consider this correspondence, we need to situate ourselves in the historical background. Remember, Paul leads his team of evangelists on a second missionary journey from Antioch. Silas, on this journey, is Paul's chief partner. Timothy, as you see the uh, city of 
Lystra will join the team fairly early in the journey at that city, or at his hometown. And then as the team journeys throughout what is today Turkey, you see here the region of Asia, and seeks to go up into Bithynia, remember that the Spirit of God says no. And there is a call across the Aegean Sea to Macedonia. The Gospel is preached at several cities here with great effect. One of those cities is Thessalonica. There's a tremendous response. There's also a tremendous response in the negative direction as there's persecution that leads the team, that leads Paul and Silas and Timothy and perhaps others that are with them, leads them to leave Thessalonica fairly quickly. Much more quickly than they had wished. So here's the situation. You have the Thessalonian believers. They're new converts to Jesus Christ and they're facing stiff persecution. So that's the situation as we come to this chapter as Paul thinks upon that concern. Now this is a bit of a strange illustration, but I think it might help us at least to get to the idea that's here. There's a mother who gives birth to a child in the basement of a house while it is being destroyed by a tornado. She has a five-year-old son there with her as well. As this newborn daughter is birthed, the house collapses and she is found by rescue workers and in, near semi-con- in semi-consciousness she is taken away from that place to a hospital. As she awakes and comes to realization of what has happened to her, where does her heart go? She's wondering about her newborn baby that's in that destroyed house, and she's wondering about her son and if they're okay. And this is where this is a little unreal, I suppose, but she comes to find out that they have been found, but that there is an angry neighbor who does not like her, who's telling the five-year-old boy that his mother has abandoned him. That she really didn't care about him, that she left him there in that house as it was falling in. Just go into her soul right at this point. What moves her? What motivates her? With intensity, she longs to speak to her son and to draw that baby into her arms and say, I love you. I miss you. She wants to be reunited with them. Now that intensity in that imaginary scenario, that intensity would not outstrip the fervor that we witness in Paul as he grapples with the agonizing separation from the Thessalonian believers. They have just been brought to Christ. They are now under intense persecution. Are they thriving in the faith? Are they going to persevere through these difficulties and trials? His heart is filled with concern for them, and we see that as he longs to see them, his spiritual children, verse 17 of chapter 2. This is the setting as we move in then to verse 17 where he says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. We see the intensity of Paul's insistent words here and it indicates that there was someone, he's just saying too much with too much zeal 
to just simply be a way of addressing them. It would appear that there's somebody back there in Thessalonica who's saying, Paul didn't care about you. That's why he left. He abandoned you. Has he been back? No, he's not been back. He doesn't really care about you. So Paul goes at some length here to, de- to demonstrate that he does care about them intensely, that he misses them, that he longs to be with them. Notice how he defends that position. He says in verse 17, I was torn away from you. Nothing short of persecution was necessary to wrench Paul away from these new believers. The Greek word means to be bereft of one's children. Paul is saying here graphically in the original text, I was like a mother whose newborn was ripped from her arms. I was torn away from you. I didn't abandon you. I didn't leave you because I wanted to. We've only been gone a short time. I think there's a second point there. And the idea is we're trying to get there. I want to see you. He says, thirdly, we've been separated in person, but not in heart. Yes, we've had to leave you, but we've not forsaken you. We can't see you. We can't hear you. We can't touch you. But as I write this to you, please know that you have not left our heart. The middle of verse 17 and following, he says, we've endeavored more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. We've been giving diligent effort to try to get back to Thessalonica. Verse 18, because we wanted to come to you. There it is again. I want to be with you. And the end of verse 18, it's nothing less than satanic opposition that's kept us away. The specific means that Satan used is not indicated here. Perhaps it included legal means used to keep Paul out of town. We don't know what it is. But he says, it's Satan that's standing in my way and hindering me from getting back to you. I want to be with you. If any question remained, Paul swings wide the door of his heart with strong emotional declaration in verse 19 and 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Their physical separation affords us a clear look into the shepherd's heart of Paul. He was energized and focused on his future accounting before Christ. I think that's what's in view here, that as he considers that standing before Christ, he says, I want to come there with you and to present you as new converts to the Savior, as fruits of my witness. You are our hope. Thessalonian believers, you are our hope. You're my joy. You're my crown of boasting and my glory. Your conversion to Jesus Christ through my witness fills my life with meaning and it crowns my head with blessing. A crown. We think of it only in one context really in our day, but maybe a good picture of the concept here would be the Stanley Cup. There's a few hockey players among us. For those that don't have a clue of what that is, that's a big, huge trophy that goes from team to team, whoever wins the championship in hockey. If you notice the tradition with that, when that game is won, each player of the winning team takes that big, huge trophy. It's huge. And they lift it over their head. 
and they skate around in triumph. It is their trophy. It is their crown. In Paul's day, the equivalent of a trophy was an athletic crown made of leaves. There were different types of leaves that were used in this area. Some suggest that it was probably made of oak leaves. But it was a crown that was placed on the head. And as someone saw that crown, it would indicate that this athlete is in triumph. This is, one, this is a trophy. This is a statement that I have prevailed and I have won. So Paul is saying, you are the crown on my head. You are like the Stanley Cup that I lift over my head in joyful triumph and say, here are the Thessalonian believers. They're my glory. The honor or renown one that receives, one receives from others. So Paul's life and his self-identity are then bound up in the Thessalonians. It's a little bit over the top, isn't it? This, my, my very life is in You. The fact that You have responded to Christ, I live. I don't think it's over the top when we recognize that He's participating in what Jesus is doing. Our joy and crown in life, of course, is God. Pursued by means of devotion and prayer and Bible reading and meditation and fasting and reading and writing and worship with God's people and walking in daily life in the presence of the Lord. He is our crown and joy. But our joy and crown should also be people that we are bringing along in Christ. Because in that, we are involved in what God is in fact doing. To love God is to love the people that He's changing. Lacking such relationships leads to emptiness in the soul that must be filled with other things. Things that will leave the soul dry and leave the soul aimless. There's a call here for us to seek relationships in which we can proclaim the death and resurrection of Christ. Are you seeking those kinds of relationships? Are you seeking to present the Gospel of Christ to unbelievers who may come in the mercy of God to embrace that message and trust the Lord as Savior. Is that part of your life? Is it the way that you go about daily life? Seeking people that you can explain to them the way of Christ and the way to heaven, the way of forgiveness of sin. We should then secondly, very clearly here, be seeking relationships in which we can bring people forward in their faith in Christ. That's our life. If we have truly been converted, we've been born again, saved by Christ, this is the life to which He calls us. This is the life that He gives us. To be seeking unbelievers and to be bringing believers along in the faith. Now for some, that will require patience. This could be a many years project of coming to this place where that is really a way of life as you learn and as you grow. It doesn't need to be. But it might take patience for some. For some, it may require a fairly radical change of orientation toward God and others. And it, This is where it ought to get somewhat uncomfortable for many of us. Because we're saying, this isn't just Paul. This is to be us. This is the way of the life in Christ to bring others to saving faith and to bring others along in that faith so that they're fit to stand before the Lord. 
I think what the key is, is to synchronize our lives with the purposes of the risen Christ. The risen, reigning, returning Christ is calling out a people for His name. That's what Jesus is doing. And if you think about it, there's really no other reason that He delays His return. We can worship Him in eternity. But in His patience, He is persistently reaching people with His saving grace. That's what He's doing as He reigns today. And that's what we are to be doing if we are synchronizing our lives with the purposes of Christ. I am alive, Paul says, because of you. You are our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting, our glory. And he says it again, you are our joy. His longing to see them. There's a shift at chapter 3 in verse 1, though it's part of the very same topic. There is a shift of focus now upon His provision for the health of these disciples. He says, verse three, chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, that is, because of the intensity of His concern for the Thessalonians, I wanted to be with you. I longed to be with you. I couldn't be with you. Satan hinders me. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And there we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the Gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. So from Thessalonica, Paul travels 220 miles or so south to Athens. And here the team is talking about the Thessalonian believers. And as, he does, as they do that, they seek to bolster their faith. It's going to take a return trip. What's the great concern? As we think of the history, we should know what this is. The great concern is they are under persecution. There's pressure upon them to abandon their newfound faith in Jesus Christ. Particularly intense in that kind of a society. They lived in a shame-based society. We have come to live within our own lifetimes in a victim-based society. That is, we sympathize with those who are abused. We sympathize with those who are mistreated. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. There's a lot that's twisted in that, but there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But they live in a shame-based society. So in our society, in the victim-based, we sympathize with those that are mistreated, but in their day, lacking the approval of one's community subjected one to the ultimate level of shame. And that shame was ratcheted to its highest degree when you were persecuted. You were actually mistreated because the community was so opposed to you. That's the world in which they lived. This shame was at its most intense level in their case as they faced this persecution. And so Paul says to provide for your perseverance in the faith, I chose to be left alone at Athens. It seems that Silas also left for Macedonia, but we know that Timothy went to the city of Thessalonica to bolster the believers here. And that leaves Paul alone at Athens. We need to understand this leaves him in a place of tremendous danger. 
in that day, in that situation, a visitor to a city wanted to have some protection, some friends to rely on. He's leaving that behind. He's saying, you go. And with that, of course, is the loneliness that's part of it. It was a great sacrifice on his part. His outreach to the Athenians was really hindered in some measure by this sacrifice that he's made for these Thessalonian believers. The mission is hindered so that I can send Timothy up to visit you and others left me here as well at Athens alone. We notice here that what is the heart of Timothy's mission? Verse 2, I sent Timothy to establish and exhort you in the faith. We see what he's up to. To establish, the Greek word means to hold someone up who's tottering. To stabilize you in the faith. Secondly, to exhort you. That is to teach you the words of God. And to help you and encourage you to be walking in obedience to the Lord. The goal is that no one be moved. It's a reference to apostasy. It's it's saying that under this pressure, we sent Timothy to bolster you and encourage you that you would not be moved off the foundation of true doctrine and run away. In light of the persecution that they're enduring, Paul's going to now take a brief sideline and to focus briefly on the relationship between suffering and the Christian life. Let's take that side trail and let's consider it. What is the relationship of suffering to the Christian life? They're under intense suffering and persecution. He says at the middle of verse 3, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Destined for what? Destined to be persecuted. Destined to suffer. For the Christian, opposition and suffering is normal. Did you hear that? That's clearly what Paul's saying. We're destined for this. They should not be shocked. They should not be shaken. When a person stands for Christ in a world that is the puppet of Satan, you're going to get hit. It's not always going to be easy. Not everyone's going to approve of you. Paul does not counsel the Thessalonians to get even. He does not counsel them to adopt the role of victim either. So he doesn't say take up arms and fight those who oppose you. He doesn't say feel sorry for yourselves and play the role of the victim and see what you can do politically to change the situation. He says this is the way it is. This is the life to which we're called. You're simply identifying with the Christ who died on a stake as a criminal. It's an evidence that you really know the Lord. This was a message Paul and his team preached often to the Thessalonian believers upon their conversion. We'll find that in verse 4. But let me stop for a moment and say, we live in a culture, in a situation where we find ourselves, where Christian teachers insist that the faithful followers of Jesus are destined to receive health and wealth, prosperity. They're false teachers. Simply said, they are false teachers. That's not what the Bible says. Listen to Paul, don't listen to them. Although you can see them and hear them on television, what Paul writes is the truth. Read him, turn them off. Anybody saying to you that if you will be a faithful Christian, your life's going to be a lot simpler, a lot easier, more prosperous and successful, that's a false teacher. Paul says you are destined for this. We told you this. We said this over and again, verse 4. 
For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. This is the normal way of a follower of Christ. Now he returns back to the point that was a little side trail about suffering in the Christian. Now he comes back to the main point, verse 5, and says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would have been in vain. I was desperately concerned about you that you would continue in the faith under these persecutions as normal as they are, they'd knock people off their foundation. And I was concerned that not happened to you. So like a mother stripped of her child, Paul was deeply concerned for these believers. Persecution is normal. Let's think on that for a moment. One of the reasons we face so little persecution is because we risk so little for Christ. But I think it is also important that we recognize that we live in a different culture. Here, suffering is less oriented toward intense physical persecution. Legal persecution. But any form of suffering can constitute an attack of Satan to pull us away from God. Any form of suffering. In persecution, Satan's oppor- Satan screams at believers that God is not good. That's where he takes that opportunity in persecution. But in normal suffering, Satan's opportunity, it's Satan's opportunity to whisper in our ear that God's ways are not good. So he's writing here to individuals where Satan is screaming at them to stop following Christ. In our culture, Satan whispers in our ear, this isn't the way to popularity. This isn't the way to prosperity. This isn't good go a different direction the only proper response is an intense concern for those who are suffering when we walk with one another in the faith and we enter into suffering we need to know that that is a place where satan can gain a foothold whether that's relational suffering whether that's physical suffering of some sort it's a place where satan can gain a foothold and we need to be praying and helping and encouraging one another through times of suffering. As we pray for those who are investing in the spiritual prosperity of no one but themselves. These are two conditions that need to elevate our concern. I've got a Christian who is pouring their life into no one else. Not bringing anyone else along. I have a Christian who's under some significant suffering. In both places, we need to pray earnestly for one another's faith. We come to a third movement in this chorus, in this song of Paul to the Thessalonians, and that is at verse 6, where he rejoices in the perseverance of his disciples. So, in the first section, verses 17-20, through He longs to be with them. He wants to supply presence to them. 3, 1 through 5, he sends Timothy to bolster them in the midst of their persecution. But now the letter turns as he focuses on the joy that he has 
he rejoices in the perseverance of these disciples because, verse 6, now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, he's reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Paul left Athens for Corinth. Timothy returns from Thessalonica to Paul in Corinth and he reports to the apostle these two pieces of very good news. The first piece, the Thessalonian believers are evidencing faith and love in the midst of persecution. That's solid evidence that their faith is real. Secondly, as much as you want to see them, they want to see you. It shows the love that is genuinely there between them. Their separation exposed Paul's intense love for them, and that separation also exposed their intense love for him. They want you to visit them again. They hold nothing against you. Paul is so relieved. His two primary worries about the Thessalonians have been satisfied. For this reason, he says, verse 7, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. The existence of your faith and your love then for us brings comfort to us in the midst of our distress and our trials. And you think of it. Paul's mission in Macedonia was not an easy one. He went to Philippi where he was imprisoned and beaten. He was run out of town in Thessalonica and Berea. He was mocked in Athens. And there were many other trials along the way. But he says it was worth it all because your faith endures. It was worth every effort. Paul is so overjoyed, he opens his heart again and he lets them know just how much they mean to him when he says in verse 8, For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And the word if there, as anybody knows that has studied Greek, is, can be translated here in this construction since. Not if, we're not really sure. Clearly he's responding to a, re a report that they are standing. So we really live since you are standing fast in the Lord. One commentator says it was like a resurrection for Paul. His spiritual children were thriving and it made him feel fully alive. He rejoiced in them and what was happening in their walk. Verse 9, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? I don't even know how to thank God for this. It's so wonderful. For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. He wasn't done with them. He wanted to go back. He wanted to build up their faith and establish them in it. We see his pastoral heart on display here. He's filled with thanksgiving to God. How can I even thank him for you? And he's filled with an intense desire to come and supply what's lacking in their faith. The Greek word to fully educate a student. To bring more information about the truth of God's word. So Paul longs to further disciple these faithful believers. He lives for the day that he gets the opportunity to again invest in them face-to-face. In light of this, I want us to consider this truth. I think it flows naturally from this text. 
There is no human relationship in this world of greater importance and joy than one in which faith in Christ is central. There's no human relationship in this world of greater importance and joy than one in which faith in Christ is central. This is one of the primary reasons why our church exists. We do not ultimately exist to create opportunities for people to make friends. We do not exist ultimately to aid families in raising their children or in helping us to grow old together. These might be good ideas. But we exist to build one another up in the faith. That's why Christ has given us life. Now in the midst of all of that, we do grow old together, we do raise children, we do develop friendships, but in this is where our focus is to be, to build one another up in the faith. To strengthen one another's faith in Christ. Now Paul finishes out the section by praying then for his disciples along these very lines. This is what motivates him. This is what he now prays to the Lord. Verses 11-13. through Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. I'm praying that God will break down Satan's barriers. What Satan has not permitted, God is fully able to provide. We do know that he traveled in Macedonia again some five years later. Perhaps God led him back to Thessalonica. And may, verse 12, he adds, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Think on that prayer. Consider it. What motivates it? What orients his relationship to them? Genuine faith evidences itself in one's love for other believers and the holiness of one's life. Holiness. It is moral distinctiveness from the world in its bent towards sin. Any concept of holiness that places us acting like the world around us isn't really holiness. It is a distinctiveness from the world. Not simply to be different, not to do everything differently, but to be distinguished by a moral faithfulness to Christ. The goal is that the Thessalonians would be pure and spiritually prepared to meet Jesus Christ upon His return. Here's where Paul's focus is. You people are going to stand before Jesus Christ. I wholeheartedly believe that. And that motivates me to want your faith and to love and love to increase. In fact, there will be a future day in which Jesus returns and godly people long for the church to be pure and ready when her bridegroom comes. That's what I will long for you. With all his saints he will come. That could refer to angels, Second Thessalonians 1 7, or to redeem people, which is the more natural meaning of the word. But at any rate, there is a day of accounting for each of us before the throne of Jesus Christ. Think on that. I will stand before Jesus Christ. You will stand before Him. And that future meeting needs to loom large in our relationships with one another. 
If we truly love one another, the moral fitness of our brothers and sisters in Christ for that meeting with Jesus dominates our interests and dominates our relationship with each other. What does a church look like where that really is the dominant theme? I think one of the things that will mark such a church is accountability to one another. There will be no sense that my life is mine, you leave me alone, and I'll leave you alone. That will absolutely be destroyed. Is that what Paul is indicating here? Not at all. There will be a sense that we are accountable to one another and we want to be vulnerable and open to one another in our struggles with sin, which then leads to an an inclusion of mutual confession. If we're in a church where we cannot confess our sins to others out of fear of what that may mean, we're in the wrong church. Or we aren't the right church and need to change. There is no shame in confessing one's sin. There is shame in not confessing one's sin to others. We should be open with who we are in our struggles, our trials. That's not to everyone all the time. But there should be a pattern of life in which we admit our wrong confess our sins that we're fitting each other for this meeting with christ such a church culture will involve thirdly a willingness to admonish one another and confront sin in one another in loving ways there are some churches that are quite willing for everybody to just air all of their sinful tendencies but nobody ever ever helping anyone There's never a confrontation in any way. Now we have to be gentle and loving with that. But there should be a willingness to say, I am willing to enter into your life and to encourage you to walk in faithfulness to the Lord. That's hard work. There's disappointments along the way. But it's absolutely necessary work. And if that's not going on in our church, accountability, mutual confession confrontation of sin then we're not a church we're just a club we're playing games is this nosy controlling well you read the letter what we're finding here is earnest yearnings of love for these people I love you enough to want you to grow in Christ. And they loved Him in the same way. Well, there's various means of approaching such a relationship, and though we have far to go as a church to become this kind of a church, we strive on some levels to be this church. We have a pattern of shepherding visits where we seek as elders to get in the homes and with people to talk with earnest desire to edify believers in their faith. Our family's, my family's visit is coming up this month. I'm pumped. I can't wait till there's elders come into our home and talk to us about our spiritual standing as a family. I look forward to that opportunity with great expectation. Usually I'm on the other end of it, but this time I'm on the receiving end of it. And if you're ever so privileged as to have shepherds sit with you and talk about your life, I would implore you, use the opportunity. 
As they're coming to my house here in a, in a few days, I'm thinking, how can I use this opportunity for the good of my family and for the good of my own soul? I'm not positioned toward them saying, I wonder what they're going to talk about. I don't feel comfortable about this. I want to use that opportunity. Don't resist that interest. Don't just bide your time until the meeting's over. Help us help you pursue holiness. Speak about your spiritual struggle. Ask for specific prayers. Seek counsel in the ways of God. They say, well, these visits take place very seldom. That's in fact the case as we comb through this congregation. But we have home group meetings that meet several times a year. We have Wednesday night prayer groups that gather. Use these opportunities. Don't just look at them as some structure that's there for who knows why. They're there for us to pursue this kind of relationship. That we on Wednesday nights, gathered in a small group for prayer, might confess our sins. Might ask for prayer, asking that those praying with us would hold us accountable and ask us how it's going in that area of my life or with that particular mission. Use these opportunities to grow in the faith. And beyond this, as we seek to find connections with people in small groups and relating to each other over the Word, really it's pretty simple. It's Christians getting together with an open Bible and a willingness to pray and a willingness to speak honestly. Now that can look very differently depending on the group and the situation. It might be a formal women's Bible study. It might be just a few guys getting together at a restaurant, and just talking with an open Bible. Read the Bible together. Pray together. Help one another along in the faith. We, as a church, Eden Baptists, are going to stand before Jesus Christ someday. And on that day, everything that we've accomplished that the world thinks is successful isn't going to matter a rip going to matter where we stand in our faith. Let's help each other. Let's encourage each other. The communication technologies of our day virtually deliver us from the experience of really missing someone as Paul and the Thessalonians experienced. That's fine. Sometimes. But in light of this text, we should all consider carefully the nature of our interest in one another. And I, I have to believe, as is true in my life, that, it should, that it's true in each of our lives, we need to make some changes. We need to rethink the way that we relate to one another. To bring it into line with what is to be. If someone defined what animates you? What fills you with zeal? What would they say is your glory? The spiritual growth of other believers in Christ? Would there be evidence that that's really where it is for you? The measure of our church's health is how much we care about one another's spiritual fitness to stand before Jesus Christ as judge. There are all kinds of fine but very inferior agendas that can easily creep into and overwhelm a church's sense of purpose. Social networking of believers. 
Not a bad thing. But if that controls the agenda, if that becomes the essence of what the church is, we're in trouble. The schooling of children. Community service. A conservative way of life. A certain political agenda. A building. All kinds of agendas can creep in and begin to define the environment of the church. Eden Baptist Church, let's focus clearly on what our calling is to build one another up in the faith. To see the lost come to faith in Jesus Christ and to see those people coming to Christ built up in that faith. That's the agenda that God has given us. This is so true for those of us who lead. We must consider this carefully and keep the church on track. It's important for those who are adults. Let me speak momentarily to those of you who are young people, children and the youth among us. Who you become as a follower of Jesus Christ is all important to this church. If you leave this church and become a movie star that everybody knows, if you leave this church and become a professional athlete, if you leave this church and through a series of events, you become the President of the United States. Wow, will we be proud. But if you become some famous person that is at the height of everything in this world thinks important, and you don't love Jesus Christ, your accomplishments will mean absolutely nothing. Because every president of this nation, every important person in our world is going to stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's all important. And that's what's important to this church. What matters to the shepherds of this church, what matters to those who are walking in fellowship with Christ, I can say what matters to me as I bear your names before the Lord in prayer day after day. What matters to the risen Christ Himself is that we stand fast in the faith until we stand in holiness before the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you prepared for that day? Are you preparing yourself for that day? The answer is not to be a better person and to do more good works. We are by nature lawbreakers. We disobey God's will. We are by nature idolaters. We love false gods. And there's nothing in you, nothing in me that is ever going to be fit to stand before Christ because of what we do. The answer is that we must all come to see ourselves for who we really are and to turn from our sin and from our idols to trust in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as the eternal payment for my sin. And then to enter a life of dependence upon Him as Lord and Savior. And may it then as we come to that saving faith in Christ, may it then be the zealous heart cry of each of us for one another. For now we live if you are standing true to Jesus Christ. For you, fellow Christian, you are my hope, my joy, and my glory. Let's bow for prayer.
our Father, we need a radical reorientation of our relationships as a church. We know this. We see it. We understand it. But I thank You for the evidences of such a relationship and I pray that they would grow. I pray, Father, that each one of us would discern our need to change and to develop. I pray, Father, that according to Your mercies, we would deepen as a church that is absolutely, zealously, and passionately concerned about one another's fitness to stand before the throne of Christ in holiness and in grace. And I pray that that would show itself in an intense love and patience and zeal for one another. Draw to Yourself, I pray, Father, anyone who knows not Christ as Savior, anyone who's not entered into that life, they have no hope of standing before Jesus unless You will open the door open their eyes and help them to see their need to trust Christ as Savior right now. I plead that in Your time, in Your grace, You will bring them to that light. And may we serve You faithfully as the body of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.